Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. You may be seated. It's good to see everyone. Thank you for joining us this morning to worship our God, both through song and through his word. You know, this morning we are going to be moving out of the second section of James that we've been in, and we're going to be moving on from this idea that we, we talked about obedience to the word, this real general idea that we should see works commensurate with the faith that God has given us. And he's going to move on to talk about very specific ways that that might look, how we can be obedient. In fact, it's going to continue on with these kind of practical examples all the way to the end of this passage, uh, all the way through the end of James. And as we've said before, James is a little harder to track this way because unlike Paul, who's giving arguments that go from A to B to C, James is talking to a community of people that he, he likely knew, might even be friends of his, and he's trying to address the different topics that he wants to share with them. And one of the main themes that we're going to see in this next section that we've put up here in, this, in our little diagram is this idea of pursue peace. And that's what we're going to see James talk about a lot, how we can pursue peace through our tongue, through our words, and the way that we can be unified as a community with one another, as God would encourage us. You know, as we go through this section of James, here's what the flow is going to look like for the next couple of weeks. <clears throat> we're going to see pursue peace. How? First, we're going to see this week by taming the tongue which we know is a very difficult task for anyone. Uh, we're going to see then in James 3.13 through 4.3 that we are to pursue peace by seeking wisdom from above and especially wisdom from God and how we are to speak and act. And then we're going to see in James 4.4 4 through 10 that James kind of takes a little detour for a moment and he goes back to his main point. And this main point that he wants to see all of us be made perfect and complete in Jesus Christ. And so he does that, and then he comes back again in James 4, 11 through 12, and wants to encourage us to speak no evil to one another. All of these should be kind of uh, bringing us back to James 1, 26, where he's talking about what does true religion look like? What does that look like in our life? How has that worked out in our faith in God? So even though this first section we're going to tackle is all about the tongue and our words, that's not exactly where James starts. If you look at James 3, 1, here's where he begins. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Show of hands this morning, who here is trying to teach everyone? Well, that's the awkwardness of this passage. (laughs) Feels like we're really talking to one. You all can leave now, right? You're not needed here. James is talking and taking direct aim at leaders, teachers, preachers, people like me, And he's obviously thinking about teachers throughout James. In fact, when we get to our our section next week, he starts it this way. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Uh, Obviously, when he's thinking about wisdom there, I'm hoping to some degree, most people would say that, that their leaders, their teachers are people who show some semblance of wisdom. That's why they're following them. And James wants to engage leaders uh, throughout this section. In fact, almost everything we're going to talk about, this idea of maybe being at at enmity or strife with one another because of the way our words are being used, uh, the quarrelsome that we can see sometimes, the the unkind and, and uncharitable speech that people have, 
we can often trace that back to, in different ways, to leaders who might not be using their language rightly. So you could see why James might want to start there. What's interesting, though, is James doesn't stay there. In fact, if we go back to how he started out in 3.1, we can say even from the beginning, he's not actually speaking directly to these teachers. Notice he says, my brothers and sisters. Uh, This phrase that we've talked about is kind of a, a symbol of James moving on to a new topic. He's not talking directly to the teachers. He's talking to the body at large. He's saying to the entire body, you you might not want to be one of those who teach. And James is throwing himself in there. He says, we, so he's including himself there, because you will be judged with greater strictness. You know, as as always, I think James is paraphrasing a lot of what he's heard from Jesus. And he's been just steeped in that, soaked in it throughout his life. So I think he's thinking about things that he'd heard from Jesus, like like this in Luke and Mark. Jesus said, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Or even harshly in this section in Mark 12, Jesus says, those who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he starts with this general thought, this general idea of that whoever is given much responsibility by God is going to be required much because God has given much. That can be in many different ways, but definitely in the sense of if you are given the ability to teach, much will be required from you. But then we can see that Jesus even gets more specific when he's talking about the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, those who are supposed to be leading and teaching the people of Israel, those people whom Jesus calls those who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Ouch. Right? He says those are the kinds of people who will have greater condemnation, and it's presumably because they weren't quite rightly teaching and guiding the people of Israel. You know, I think this section becomes for James sort of a both and. He's talking to the leaders and he's talking to the people broadly. You know, of course, everything about speaking about our tongue could apply to leaders in so many different ways. But it's also a concern for each of us. You know, as I thought about this passage this week, I thought about the things that I say. And I was thinking about how often what I say is to try to make something happen. You know, I, I'm oftentimes, with my words, uh, wanting to teach people in one way or another. I, I really, I'm like, I want them to hear me, to care about it, to act upon it. I'm like, man, I really am that prideful when I open my mouth. I, it, it becomes teaching, even at the basic level, even on a one-on-one moment with many different people. And my guess is that the same might be true for you. You know, that you probably don't open your mouth most times with no desire, <laughs> with no expected outcome. And you want to affect people. You want to move them in one way or another. In that sense, this section about being careful what we teach can become important for everyone. So I sit here and go, phew, okay, this isn't just going to be about me today. (laughs) You guys are on the hook too. We all have a tendency to try to teach one another, to, to exhort one another in many ways that we need to be careful about how we do that. You know, we might do it in different, different situations in different arenas as parents to children as friend to friend. Uh, Many of you might be hoping to move up the ladder at your work environment so you can tell other people how to do the work. That'd be teaching. Or you might even want to do it in a place like church or sharing the gospel with others. And we should all have a concern for the additional judgment that comes from when we presume to teach. And we can see this as well as we get to to verse 2. James says this, he says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. This is the second time that we've seen that word for or because, and it's actually connecting back up to the first statement that James said. So his argument here is this. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters. Why? Why should we become teachers? First, one, because you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, and two, because we all stumble in many ways. 
It's really those two, when they're linked together, that help you feel the weight of it. I mean, if it was just the first one, you might go, man, I just need to study more. If I could really know it well, then I can be a teacher. Then we're good. I don't have to worry about it. It's when you throw that second section in there that makes it a little harder, that we all stumble in many ways. You know, the the problem, as James says, is that we're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. In fact, James seems to double down on that statement here in the next section. He says, Casey, there we go. Oh, now we need to go back. He says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, then he is a perfect man and able to bridle his whole body. If James's first main point throughout this is that those should, that we should not uh, presume to teach because we'll be judged more strictly, this is his second point, that if you could control your tongue, you would be a perfect person, able to control everything. Now, he links this idea of being a teacher with our tongues and what comes out of our mouth and how those both should be concerns to us. And that makes sense when you think about the verbal part of teaching. It's, it's what I'm doing. It's, I'm using words. So his first point is not many of you should become teachers because you will be judged and we all sin and stumble. But his second main point is if you don't sin in your words, you'd be perfect. This becomes sort of his overriding theme that goes throughout this section today and really throughout this entire third section of James. You know, on the one hand, we should hear that phrase perfect because we've been in James. We've been talking about it through chapters one and two. And we should go, that's right. I want to be perfect. I want to be perfect like my Lord and Savior. I want to know the right thing to say at any given moment that it might be a blessing to others, that it might be a blessing in my life. And on the other hand, James is being clear by the way he's saying this, that we can't do it. Uh, That if we we are able to control our tongues, we would have seen ourselves able to control our own bodies. And I don't know about you, but I fail in so many other ways, not just with my tongue, that it seems to be that James is just guaranteeing that that's going to happen. We all know that we're going to fail there, so we shouldn't be surprised when we fail with our words. So we have James here speaking potentially to leaders, but to all of us about about our tongues, about how we shouldn't presume to teach because of our tongues, because of how our words tend to come out of our mouths. And I think James can take one of two tacks here, right? If he wanted to really just encourage the leaders, he could have just spoken straight to the leaders and said, hey, I want you to be better at how you use your tongues. And we all would assume that a community guided by leaders who were rightly using their tongues would begin to show that same characteristic. But I think James takes a different tact here. He wants to speak to everyone, raise, raise all boats, as it were, that he wants everyone to start to see what would it look like? What, what is going on with your tongue? How should I think about my words rightly? that everyone might be encouraged and that even the the people might hold their leaders accountable to using their words rightly in a way that glorifies and honors God. You know, undoubtedly leaders will hear these words. Uh, They're included in those brothers and sisters. But James wants us all to hear and to understand what it would look like to use our tongues and words wisely. And so over these next 11 verses that we're going to look at this morning, James makes five different statements, five different statements uh, about our tongue, ways that we should be uh, concerned, ways and things that we should watch, things that we might want to change, and things that we should know as we strive to see ourselves become more perfect and complete in Jesus. And with, with each one, he gives at least one illustration so that we might understand better what he's saying about our tongue and our words. So let's go along with James here, James 3, 3 through 5. This is his first statement. He says, If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. 
Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. If we just format that passage a little bit, we can see that the statement really is the third thing that he says in here. The statement that he wants us to understand is that the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. In other words, it's small but can have outsized effect or bigger outcomes than you might think about. And his three main illustrations are horses, ships, and fire. Now, James is doing something that we miss a little bit again because we're not in his culture. He's doing something you see pastors even do today. He wants to make sure that the people know that he understands them. Now, not, not because that they all use horses and they all use fire and they all use ships, but really he's trying to connect with the things they've read, their current culture and what's happening around them. You see, we do it oftentimes by making sure we drop an, an allusion to a certain TV show or movie or a phrase from something like that, or we make sure everyone knows that we understand that Snapchat and TikTok and Be Real all exist, even though you've never seen us on it. We, James is kind of doing the same thing. Uh, he, he wants you to know that he's reading along with you. These examples, these three examples of horses, ships, and fire have become the go-to in this way for his culture. In fact, one of the best ways I can show it to you is from the works of Philo. Philo was a Jewish philosopher. He lived from before Jesus and died about the time that James is writing here. Um, and this is what he says. He wants to talk about mind and feelings. He says, mind is superior to the sense perception. That's feelings. When the charioteer is in command and guides the horses with the reins, the chariot goes the way he wishes. A ship again keeps to her straight course when the helmsman grasping the tiller steers accordingly. Just so when mind... The charioteer or helmsman of the soul rules the whole living being as a governor does a city. The life holds a straight course. But when the irrational sense gains the chief place, the mind is set on fire and is all ablaze. And that fire is kindled by the objects of sense, which sense perception supplies. You can see all three of those examples there. And, and you see it come up again and again in, in Greek literature. People like Sophocles, Plutarch. James is kind of saying, I've read what you've read. I understand your environment, and I want you to take those analogies, and I want to now put it into use with the tongue. I want you to think about this in, in the way that the tongue would be using this. And so he does that. He talks about the horse. If you haven't ridden horses before, they have a little metal bit that go in their mouth so that when you pull on the reins, you can guide them and turn them wherever you want them to go. Similarly, he takes that analogy of the ship. Uh, the analogy from a ship where, where even though the waves might be huge and the wind very strong, what ultimately is guiding the direction of that ship is this tiny little rudder right underneath the waves. And then lastly, he takes this image of a fire where we have all seen just a small spark caught just right can, can start a huge blaze. And he's probably thinking of a brush fire, not a forest fire like we experience in Idaho, but a brush fire like out in the desert, taking out all this dry brushes all over I don't know about you, I've seen moments like that. And it's very panicking thinking about that kind of a fire starting and how are you going to stop it? You know, James' point is not hard to understand here, but that doesn't mean we don't fail at it often. The real question he's asking is, do you underestimate your tongue? Do you underestimate the importance of your words? Are you too quick to say things like, I didn't mean it that way. You aren't understanding me. What I really meant was. All those phrases in part minimize the outsized effect that our words can have. One small word, one statement can shift the course of an entire conversation and sometimes the course of a friendship, sadly. And that may not have been your intention, but words matter. They move things. They move people. They move relationships. They move conversations. 
they're like that spark in dry grass, like the bumped hand on a steering wheel or, or the, the false movement of a hand holding a sharp object. You may not have been your goal, but that movement had an effect nonetheless. So too with our words. And probably worse still would be that we might not act like this is one of the major areas of sin in all of our lives that we need to work on. That we would downplay words and their importance and the way they work between us and others. Most importantly, we see this because God is a God of words. He created everything that we know and understand through words. By his word, he created life, separated land and sea, earth and sky, light and dark. With his words, he made me and you. He was so happy with this idea of words that he called himself Jesus, the very word of God. And he gives us his word, his scripture, that we might know him. It's one of our primary ways to, to understand his, 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 uh, his, his heart, his desires, and even his plan and what he is doing. And the question would be, is there anywhere this morning that you might need to apologize to someone or admit the outsized effect that your words may have? I mean, I feel that often as a parent, that, that I'm trying so hard to use my words well, and I worry, do I miss sometimes and not use them in a way that's appropriate, that, that might have a bigger effect than I really want? <clears throat> you know, so too, our words should bring forth light, understanding, goodness, mercy, and love like our God. Or is there perhaps an area where you need to realize in general that your words have effect, uh, that, that you might need to have a, a carefulness about them in general? You know, this section leads naturally into where James goes next in James 3, 6, where, where he moves from these like and as statements to just direct statements, something is. Now, he's building up his argument and helping us to feel the weight of how our tongue and how our words affect people and affect us. And he makes two statements here. Here's what he says. He says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Again, if we're to sort of bring some formatting to these, we can see that he starts out with two statements and then he gives an illustration for each one of those statements. And he, he's, again, using these statements like is instead of like and as as he was previously. It makes it feel more urgent, more forceful here. The tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. And the first illustration that he matches is with this idea of being a world of unrighteousness. And he, and he talks about the tongue being a stain, uh, being among all of our members, yet staining the whole body. <clears throat> James is drawing on imagery from the Old Testament. From the Old Testament where when you, when you had a sin, when you had a disease, you had to be separated from the people because the assumption was that that uncleanliness, whether it was sin or disease, could spread. So you were sent outside the camp outside the camp until you atoned for the sin, until by God's grace or natural means you were healed, and then you had to be symbolically washed and cleansed to demonstrate that the Lord had, had cleansed you and brought you back in. That's the picture that he's using with the tongue, that our tongue and what comes out of it can stain our whole body, infect everything that we are, our direction, our hopes, our desires, and where we're moving. But James also says, that it's the fire that sets all of life on fire, and it itself, the tongue, is set on fire by hell. I mean, wow. James is really amping up this discussion about the tongue quickly. 
I mean, so far he's told us that we tend to underestimate the tongue in general, but then also in specifically with the outsized effects that it can have in our lives. And now he's telling us that our, our tongue can be like this stain where as we, as we speak unholy things, un, ungodly, uncaring, unloving things, that it can affect our entire body. But now he's saying it also lights all of life on fire and it itself is burning by the fires of hell. You know, clearly James views the tongue as deadly and dangerous. That's what these two statements are meant to push us towards. And yet we have to ask why? Why such a pessimistic view of the tongue? And I think we'd have to go to places like Proverbs. If you look at what the writers of Proverbs says, they say things like this often. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Or a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. Again and again, the writers of Proverbs comes back and says that those who are outside of the righteousness and holiness of the Lord produce only bad things out of their mouth. And yet we even come to places like Jesus, who says this in Matthew 15. Jesus says, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. I think this is the concept that, that James is thinking about in the back of his mind when he's talking about the tongue here. How our words and our tongue reveal the utter brokenness of our heart and our desires. Even now, still as believers, we are doing what Paul says is fighting against the flesh in Romans 7. There is still this flesh nature that is with us. It will be dealt with someday, but it's still here. And so often our tongue and our words reveal that sin and flesh nature, the very hell that's within us. It's what required Christ to die on the cross for our sins, that we might be given his righteousness and yet we, we, even those of us who trust in him, are constantly working to push it off. Trusting in the Lord to work in our lives through his Holy Spirit that he might change that nature, put it to death completely. You know, we've been saved, yet our fleshly sin is still there. It's easy to see in those who do not follow the Lord, yet it is still even in us. And that our tongue and our words are a stain and a fire revealing what is inside. I think we're meant to feel like this has become a very heavy discussion for James. He wants us to feel the weight of our tongue and our words, especially as he's going into an entire section about words and our tongue. And he wants us to think about that. He's using images that should be striking to us, that should humble us. We underestimate our tongue and our words, but we also don't often believe that they are deadly and dangerous, both to ourselves and to others. Do you view your tongue and your words that way? That they can, that your words can stain your whole being? That, that your, your words are like a fire that often demonstrates the sin that was let by the fires of hell within you? Now, could you and I, could we admit what John Calvin says, which is the tongue is a slender portion of flesh that contains the whole world of iniquity. Anything bad can come out of our mouths. All of our sins can be represented there in our mouth. And as one scholar said, I think this is the experience we all understand well. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, reverses the truth of the matter. 
Far easier to heal are the wounds caused by sticks and stone than the damage caused by words. You probably know that, I do. I have, I, have, I have injuries that I no longer have the effects of, yet I have scars and damage from words that I'm still unpacking at 45. You know, I think this section of James can feel a little bit like an, a hellfire and brimstone sermon. Like you're just being pummeled by the weight of the difficulty of our tongues and our words and, and what, what happens and how it's so painful. And I think on one, one side, that's okay. You know, it's one of the things that we have to trust when we come to Scripture. We have to read it, study it, teach it, preach it, be willing to allow it to have the effect that it's meant to have, uh, to allow us to feel this weight that James seems to really want us to feel. I think James wants us to rightly orient our understanding of our tongue and words at the beginning of this section because he's going to go on to say so much about it. But I think he also wants us to feel some hope. I don't think he wants to leave us here without hope today. And I think as we look at this next statement, we can see that James begins to do that by putting some allusions back to some things he's already said. Look what he says here in 3, 7 through 8. He says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human can tame the tongue. Again, if we just format it, we can see one main statement with an illustration that goes along with it. And the statement being pretty clear We've tamed all sorts of creatures. I mean, imagine if that was true in James's day, how amazing he'd think that was today. Dogs that can guide blind people, right? People who can get on the top of orcas and, and dolphins and go propelling through the water and out of it because we've trained them. Yet he's saying we can't really tame the tongue. We still fail whenever we try to do that. But I think James wants us to see a little bit more from this verse than that. The last sentence here is actually trying to translate a really weird phrase in James. Here's what he literally says. He says, but no one can tame the tongue among people or mankind, right? St. Augustine has this to say about that phrase. He says, he, James, does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but no one of men. So that when it is tamed, we confess that this is brought about by the pity, the help, and the grace of God. I think undoubtedly James is wanting us to think back to what he shared to us already. We should be feeling this weight, but we should be looking to the hope that James has already said that we have. The hope that we have in a God who doesn't just change outward things, but changes the inward things. A hope in a God who wants to change our hearts. Yes, we have to have works commensurate with our faith, but that faith and growth comes from a God and the Holy Spirit who's working within us. You know, here, because the tongue is demonstrating what is within us, as Jesus said in Matthew 15, we need God to change our heart, to change our desires, to change our passions, that what would actually come out of us might be to his glory and to everyone's amazement of a God who can do that sort of thing to us. We can't do it, as James says, but God can do that, and God does do that. You know, I think James continues to point us to this larger picture that he's been painting since the beginning of his letter, especially about our identity and God's singular goodness to us as he goes into this next section. He says this, he says, it, it the tongue, is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessings and cursings. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. 
Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Again, if we format that just at the beginning a bit, we can see that he starts with a summary and then just gives us one statement here. It seems that James is wanting to, to point back to the things he's already told us. He says that the tongue is a, a restless evil that obviously goes to the section about taming it. But again, we can think clear back to the beginning, this idea that we don't even think about our tongue enough and how much effect it has, how outsized its working is in our lives. And then this statement, this statement about being a deadly poison is, is another reminder of how dangerous, how deadly our tongue can be both to our own lives, but to those who receive those words. And here he gives one more point, that our tongue can be duplicitous, that we can, we can choose to say nice things to one person or mean things to another, or directly to James's point, we can come here this morning on Sunday and we can worship our God, proclaim all the glories and wonders, beauties that he's given us in Jesus Christ, and then as we leave, to a very image bearer of God themselves, say things that would crush them that would demean them and hurt them. You know, up to this point, here's what James has said to us about the tongue. He has said this. One, we should not underestimate the power of our tongue in words. Two, <clears throat> our tongue is dangerous. It's like a fire and a stain, and it reveals the true sin within us. Three, the tongue cannot be tamed, but we can hope in God who can change it. And the tongue is duplicitous, unlike our God, who is singularly devoted to us for goodness. And for myself, when I summarize what James had been saying this way, I began to wonder that would anything really change in his argument if it was a different sin he was talking about? Now, surely James had this sin in mind for these people that he knew. He was concerned about their tongue. He was concerned about the words that he was hearing coming out of their mouth. But what if it was something different? Would it really have been that different? I mean, here is at the core what James is saying. James is saying, you have a sin you have underestimated. Not only that, but your sin is also much more deadly and dangerous than you want to admit. It comes from a brokenness inside of you. The brokenness that is from a dying remnant of your sin nature that was bound for hell. You cannot fully fix it on your own, but there is hope. God can and will this side of heaven begin to sanctify you, to change you, that you might be more and more like Jesus and will complete that work one day fully. When you latch onto this sin as a believer, you are being duplicitous. That is not how our God acts, and it is not how you should act. You should have works commensurate with your faith and your new identity. <clears throat> it seems what James is doing masterfully is laying this sin of the tongue over everything that he shared with us already from chapter one through chapter two and demonstrating how we should look at that sin, what we should be thinking about. And I think he continues that on even here in this last piece of this passage where he talks about our identity. He appeals to it. He says, my brothers and sisters, this ought not be true. And then he gives four examples and they're kind of in a chiasm where they, the, the first and the last go together and the middle two go together. Can, can salt water and fresh water come out of the same spring? Can you have a salt pond that brings forth fresh water? Could, could a fig tree give olives or could a, a grapevine produce figs? He's saying, live accordingly to what God has done in you. You shouldn't be producing these sort of things anymore. In your identity as a beloved son and daughter, as an ambassador of the Most High God, he's given you his Holy Spirit that you might see it producing these works in you. 
he's saying this, this use of your tongue to hurt and not heal, to set on fire instead of quench, to poison instead of prop up, that is not really you. You are God's beloved ones. You are called to use your tongue in words for God's glory like he uses it. I think there are two things that James would want us to walk away from this section today. First, I think James has masterfully modeled for us how we should engage all of our sins, how we should think about it in light of everything that he's taught us so far. This is what I think he wants us to do. In our sin, we should not underestimate the power of that sin. Two, we should realize that our outward sin is dangerous and deadly and that it can reveal the true sin that is lurking within us still that flesh that has not died. Three, that our sin cannot be tamed by us, but that we have a hope in God. We have a God who wants to deal with that in Jesus Christ and that our sin is duplicitous. It's not who we really are called to be today now in Jesus Christ. You know, I think if we were to approach our sin like this, we would find it to be both much harder than it usually is. It would amplify how awful our sin is, how destructive it is, how deadly it is for us and for others around us. But I pray it would also be more hopeful, more hopeful because it puts the weight on a God who had to do things for us, a God who had to solve the problem for us in Jesus Christ, who had to deal with our internal sins, our internal hearts and desires and change them, that good might come out of us and that he might be glorified. You know, second, we have to ask a real practical question of, what would you do this week in regard to your words? You know, what would that look like to put the proper weight on words as James is going to continue to encourage us about this throughout this section? You know, I had a gal friend throughout high school and college who she got just devastated by this. She had some really hard experiences with a couple friends, really felt like she crushed them, really hurt them with her words, several things in a row. And she really wanted to take this to heart. It just weighed heavily on her heart. And so she went and got her tongue pierced. This is back in the day when that wasn't seen very well. But she wanted a constant reminder to herself that every time she opened her mouth and used her words, that it had a potential to hurt, to kill, to hurt her. Now, I'm not expecting or hoping that most people show up with a tongue ring next week. <laughs> but, but I want you to ask the question of yourself, how can I make it that real? How can I make it that tangible to myself to care about my words, to care about the damage that they do to myself and do to others? But then second, what might it look like to put your trust in God, to put your trust in God this week as the one who wants to work in you to make you perfect and complete, not fully here in this lifetime, but one day face to face as we meet him in the new heavens and the new earth. What would that look like to put your trust that he could work that in your hearts through his Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father God, it is a hard thing to have our sin displayed. And Lord God, it's, it's hurtful to think about just even one sin, our, our words, our tongue, and how, how awful it can be. As you said, set on fire by hell, our very sin nature that wants to corrupt and destroy us, Lord God. Father, thank you for being willing to show us those things. Thank you for being willing to, to remind us of how much our sin has cost, that it cost the cross, that it cost you, yourself, going there, that you might die for our sins to give us your righteousness and to give us your Holy Spirit, that we might walk in your Holy Spirit today 
as beloved sons and daughters, as those who have your very presence and who you are conforming more and more every day to be like our Savior, Jesus. Lord God, would you continue that good work in us? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.